Good morning, folks. Let's uh, pray together. Loving God, as we come to consider your word, we ask that you plant these truths, this message, deep in our hearts, so that we might go from this place as different people to make a difference in our world. And so, loving God, inspire us and move us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I wonder whether you have ever met somebody famous or somebody of note in an unusual situation. Have you ever seen somebody uh, famous in an unexpected situation? It's never really happened much to me. I've, I've met famous people uh, in the past, but never kind of in those, those sort of unexpected situations. I've met, uh, we, we walked past Sue Pollard, I think it was Sue Pollard, uh, a cash machine in London. Um, we, uh, we saw Jennifer Aniston in Harrods on the same trip, so clearly it was uh, every celebrity or, or C-list celebrity was in London at that point. I might have seen Noel Gallagher at an airport once. It's hard to tell if that's who it was. And Nicola claims that she was on a flight with the actor Steve Buscemi as well. But I read a story recently of uh, somebody who had met a, a celebrity in an unexpected place. Um, there's a, a, a message board called Reddit, and, uh, and some, one of the users had put up a question to say, tell us your story about meeting a celebrity in an unexpected place. And so user Adam said this. He said he was working on a shift as uh, helping freshmen move into university. This, this was in America. Um, helping them to move into their dorm rooms in, uh, in America. And he saw a guy wearing a baseball cap who, and sunglasses who was helping his daughter uh, move into uh, her dorm. And he struck up a conversation uh, with the family and with the guy who was helping her, and he helped move, uh, move the daughter's bags in. Later, when the daughter opened the door for the first time, the guy with the glasses, the sunglasses and the hat whipped out a camcorder and started videoing what was happening to record it for posterity and apparently had the biggest dad smile uh, on his face. And then he turned the camera on the, the guy who was writing the story and asked about what they thought about the city, what they thought about the university uh, and what they thought about, uh, about the dorm rooms. And it turns out that the guy that was videoing them um, was Steven Spielberg. And so the guy goes on to say that, um, say that, uh, that so he has a supporting, the luggage, and speaking role in a limited edition release, home movie, film shot by Steven Spielberg. So maybe this is your icebreaker conversation over coffee afterwards. Have you ever met any famous people? Um, did you know there was a famous person? Was it an unusual uh, situation? When we, uh, when we see somebody of note, or when somebody of note or somebody famous um, uh, arrives in an unexpected place, often we don't recognize them. Often we don't know that it's that, it's that, that person. Context seems to play a huge part in how we recognize folks. When we meet with Jesus, uh, that is when we're really connecting with our faith, when we're connecting with God, when we're feeling the Spirit's presence in our life. Does that happen for you in certain places? 
Are there places where we expect to meet Jesus? So does meeting with Jesus happen in church for you? Does it happen while you're looking at the stained glass windows? Does it happen when you're singing your favorite hymns? Does it happen during personal prayer times? Does it happen during retreat uh, 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 retreat times or conferences, if you've ever been on a Christian conference? Or does it happen when you're out walking in the hills and looking at a beautiful landscape? And those are all great places to meet Jesus, and I'm certainly not knocking meeting Jesus in those places. But meeting Jesus isn't limited to just those places. When we read of Jesus' appearances to his disciples after his resurrection, we find that Jesus turns up in unexpected places. And often these disciples are startled uh, and they don't expect to meet him there. So they don't expect to meet him in a locked upper room. They don't expect to meet him in a garden outside his burial tomb. That's a very unusual place to meet Jesus. Or they don't recognize him. So like the disciples walking the road to Emmaus, they don't recognize that that's Jesus. And one other account of Jesus' post-resurrection experiences that we're going to explore today, Jesus turns up in an unexpected place. He turns up in his disciples' place of work. And as we'll see, again, they don't recognize him. So I wonder whether you expect to meet with the risen, with the risen Jesus in unusual places. I wonder if you expect to meet with Jesus at your desk at work, or on a building site, or in the classroom, or out in the playground, or do you expect to meet the risen Jesus at Inner Wheel, or at Rotary, or volunteering for your charity, or when you're cutting the grass at Pitmedden Gardens, or when you're in, in the coffee apothecary or the Riverside Cafe talking to friends. I wonder if you expect that Jesus will turn up in those places, and if Jesus does turn up in those places for us, then do we recognize him? Well, we're going to hear the story about Jesus turning up in an unusual place, and we're going to explore what happens uh, with that. And Ian is uh, going to uh, come and read that story for us just now. Today's reading is from John chapter 21, verses 1 to 14. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, 
They were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred metres. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there, with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask them, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Amen. Thank you, Ian. So imagine if somebody really important turned up at your workplace or the place where you volunteer. Imagine it's the CEO of the charity or a celebrity is visiting uh, the gardens or the, uh, or the charity shop that you work in. Imagine the Duke or Duchess of Cambridge have come to find out how you do your job. Or imagine that somebody really important to you, your wife or your husband or your partner or your best friend or your son or somebody like that has turned up to your workplace and has come to visit to see what it is that you do. You would want everything to go smoothly. You don't want something to go wrong on that day. You certainly don't want your computer to break, the zoo animals to escape, or your P6 class to, uh, 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 to be having one of those days. And of course, those zoo animals and P6 class are not linked in any way. You would certainly want to be able to put your best foot forward. You want to show that you know what it is that you're doing when somebody comes to see you um, at your work. For Peter, that's not what happens. Jesus shows up at Peter's workplace and he is having the worst day possible. He is feeling like a complete failure because everything is going wrong for him. Peter's back at his work. Peter's work was being a fisherman, and he's having a bad day being a fisherman. He hasn't caught anything. That's what he does for a living, and he hasn't caught anything. Not a nibble. He feels like a complete failure, and that is never a good feeling. And hopefully, if you've ever experienced that, you've not felt as big a failure as a man called Arthur Pendrick. Between 1962 and 1977, Arthur Pedrick patented 162 inventions, which sounds impressive, 162 inventions. Sounds impressive until you realize that none of them were taken up by anybody at all. Some of his greatest potential inventions were a bicycle that could go underwater. 
an arrangement whereby a car could be driven from the back seat. And several golf inventions, including a golf ball that could be steered in flight. Who would like that of the golfers amongst you? Apparently his grandest scheme, uh, he described himself as a one-man think tank basic research laboratory. But his, base, but his grandest scheme was that he wanted to irrigate the deserts of the world by providing a constant supply of snowballs from the polar regions by, uh, by, uh, by building a massive network of giant pea shooters. Arthur Pendrick, hadn't, if, he, if he hadn't been the one-man think tank, then he might have honed and stumbled upon some decent inventions rather than the ones that he did. Maybe somebody needed to give him advice to choose a different career. Thankfully for Peter, Jesus, doesn't, Jesus gives him some decent advice. Peter is having a bad day, but Jesus gives him some advice in his failure day. John records that Jesus comes and stands on the shoreline and he says this. He says, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And then John goes on to say, when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. And then once they see the huge catch of fish, and once the other disciples realize who it is that has been shouting at them, they point out that it's Jesus. And Peter recognizes him, and he goes running to meet him. And John says this. He says, they wrapped his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off, and he jumped into the water. Peter is really excited to see Jesus. And what's really interesting about this interaction between Jesus and Peter is what Jesus reaction to the situation is in front of him. Do you remember that these are Jesus' disciples? These are the disciples that Jesus a few years ago called away from their jobs. He called them away to follow him, but now they're back at their jobs again. And with that context, you wonder why Jesus isn't angry with them, why he doesn't rebuke them. You wonder why Jesus doesn't tell them that they've been unfaithful to go back to their jobs. You wonder why Jesus hasn't said that they haven't trusted him because they've gone back to their jobs. Yet that's not what Jesus does. Jesus encourages them. He helps Peter in his work. He supports what it is that Peter is doing. He comes alongside Peter and he breathes new life into what he's doing. Peter couldn't catch any fish. And then Jesus breathes new life into what it is that Peter's doing, and suddenly he catches 150-odd fish. And no matter what the future is with Peter and how his life develops and how, uh, how he's involved with setting up the community that we know as the church, we know at this point, in this point of the story, Jesus encourages and supports Peter in what he is doing there. He supports Peter in his work. He breathes new life into it. He comes and gives helpful encouragement in Peter's everyday life. And that's what Jesus does for us. He gives encouragement to us in our everyday lives because our work is good. And so as we explore what it means to be a resurrection people, 
It seems that our work, either paid or unpaid, voluntary or employed, is part of being a resurrection person. We're not called to stop work. We're not called to live as monks or nuns. We're not called to leave our work behind. Of course, sometimes we are called to do all of that, but it's not usual for that to happen. We're called mainly to be witnesses to the risen Jesus in every sphere of our lives, and that includes what we do as a living or what we do as a volunteer. The poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning once wrote, Earth is crammed with heaven, and every bush aflame with God, but only those who see take off their shoes. I think part of what Jesus calls us to do is to look for and see Jesus in the everyday parts of our lives, to metaphorically take off our shoes when we encounter them, which is really just a poetic way of saying to recognize the everyday situations in our work and in our lives that are holy. So those times where we can bring patience, grace, and compassion to a work meeting, or where we can show understanding and compassion in an encounter with a difficult customer, either at your workplace or where you volunteer. But what's interesting as well is that the encouragement to um, offer our work in our everyday lives to God is something that is both really old and really new. It's something that goes back to the ancients, and it's something that looks forward into the future. If you look back into the Old Testament, then we find a vision described by a man called Isaiah about what God will create at the end of time. A couple of weeks ago, Peter kind of talked a wee bit about this. Isaiah paints a picture of a new heaven and a new earth. And what he paints is really interesting. It's not a picture of clouds and harps and angels. It's not a picture of endless church services. It's a picture of a full life, a life where work is part of it, a life where work is part of our worship. Isaiah says this. He says, they will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain. Seems like God isn't going to do away with work. But it does seem that God will change our work in the end. It seems that God will change our work into something better. So he'll banish work that is futile and pointless. So God will do away with endless, boring meetings. Hallelujah. If we were in America, you would say hallelujah. God will do away with paperwork, or at least uh, uh, paperwork for the sake of paperwork. And God might even do away with Kirk Session meetings. My goodness. 
God will do away with unjust work. So nothing that disadvantages another person, nothing that puts another person down, nothing that brings waste or decay. God will do away with all work that is in vain. So nothing that advances one person's ego or just brings more and more empty profit, although it's probably likely that God will do away with money or the futile building up of money. The vision that Isaiah paints is of a heavenly city renewed and and a renewed and restored earth where we enjoy all of God's good gifts, including food and houses and satisfying, enjoyable work. And I wonder if we allow ourselves the joy of imagining a future that is so much better than probably our imaginations can take in, I wonder how this then changes how we view our work now. I wonder if we know what work will be like in the future, what change does it make to how we do our work or our voluntary stuff now? Writer and speaker Simon Sinek, when interviewed on a podcast I was listening to recently, he was asked about what motivates him currently in his work on leadership and writing. And he said this, he said, I imagine a world in which the vast majority of people wake up every single morning inspired, feel safe wherever they are, and end the day fulfilled by the work they do. Now, isn't that just another way of describing what it is that Isaiah said? Isaiah said that my chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They'll not labor in vain. I think this is what Simon Sinek is saying. Isaiah Isaiah talks about an eternity of inspiration through our work by the things that we do with our hands and how we fill our time. You see, Jesus breathed new life into Peter's work. Peter couldn't catch any fish that day, but with Jesus, he caught 150 odd. If we open ourselves up to hearing from Jesus in our everyday work and our lives, even those times where our work is frustrating and difficult can become new. Even those times where our work is difficult, Jesus can breathe new life into it. Recently, I read a story of a salesman called Bob Perks and an interaction that he had with a family that he was visiting as he was doing a round of sales calls. He explains that he hadn't been working particularly long in this area or with this particular sales job for the government. He described that it wasn't really doing hard labor, but it was pretty dull and pretty boring, and he got an awful lot of slammed doors in his face and a lot of folks that weren't interested. So it was fairly demoralizing. So after a number of slammed doors, he decided to change tack. So the next door that he went to, he said, before you slam the door, I'm not selling anything. I just need you need to ask you a few questions and, uh, about yourself and about the community. He said that the young lady that had answered the door paused for a moment, raised her eyebrows, and shrugged her shoulders, and was slightly confused by his rude introduction. But she invited him in, and she apologized um, about the mess that her kids had made in the house. Bob described the house as an older home in a section of the valley where people were on a meager income. 
have, uh, uh, and, uh, but had managed to find kind of affordable houses. But with the little that they seemed to have, the home looked comfortable and welcoming. And so he got down to the purpose of his visit, and he said, I just need to ask you a few questions about yourself and your family. And although this may sound personal, I don't need to use names, um, and that's not how this information is going to be used. But before he could finish, he was interrupted because the husband, uh, because, um, because the lady asked him if, she would like, if he would like a drink of cold water. You look like you've had a rough day, she said. And Bob replied, well, yes, I have. It's not been the best. Um, she returned with the water, and then a man came in through the front door, and it was her husband. She turned to him and said, Joe, this man is here to do a survey. And Bob stood politely and introduced himself and shook the man's hand. He said that Joe was tall and lean. His face was kind of rough and aged looking, although he was probably in his early 20s. He said his hands were like leather, the kind of hands that do manual work, the kind of hands that you get from working hard, not from necessarily pushing pens and pencils. The wife leaned in and kissed him gently on the cheek, and they looked at each other, and Bob Perks said, you could see that this was a loving relationship. It was the love that they had that held them together. And the girl said, Joe works for the borough. And Bob asked, well, what is it that you do? And before Joe could answer, the wife jumped in and said, Joe collects garbage. Um, you know, I am so proud of him. Sheepishly, Joe said, honey, I'm not really sure that the man really wants to know um, all about this. But Bob replied, yeah, yeah, I really, I do, I do. And so Bob's, uh, Joe's wife went on. She said, you see, Bob, Joe is the best garbage man in the borough. He can stack more garbage in the truck than anyone else. He gets so much in one truck that they don't have to make as many rounds. In the long run, Joe continued, I save the borough money. Man hours are down and the cost per truck is less. And then there was silence. And Bob didn't really know what to say. He sat shaking his head and scratching his, uh, his face and kind of wondering what to say next and searching for the right words. Eventually he said, that's incredible. Most people would gripe about a job like that. It's certainly a difficult one, but your attitude about it is amazing. And then Joe's wife got up and walked over to a shelf that was next to the couch. And as she turned, she held in her hand a small framed piece of paper. And as she spoke softly, she said, we, uh, when we had our third child, Joe lost his job. We were on unemployment for a long time and then eventually welfare. He couldn't find work anywhere. And one day he was sent uh, for an interview in this community. And they offered him the job that he now holds. And he came home ashamed and depressed. He was telling me, this is the best job that I can find. Actually, we got paid more when we were on welfare. And then she paused for a moment and walked towards Joe. And she said, I've always been proud of him. Um, and I always will be. You see, I don't think it's the job that makes the man. I believe the man makes the job. And then Joe backed this up by saying, we needed to live in the borough in order to work here. And so we rented this home. And then the wife took up the story again. And she said, when we moved in, there was this quote that was hanging 
on the wall just inside the front door, and it made all the difference to us. I knew that Jo was doing the right thing, and she handed Bob the frame. And the framed piece of paper said this. It said, if a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep the streets even as Michelangelo painted or Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. It was a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King. She continued saying, I love him for who he is, and what he does is the best. I love my garbage man. Friends, we can meet God here in worship, and I always hope that you do. We can meet God in a beautiful landscape, and I hope that you do. We can meet God in prayer, and I hope that you do. But we can also meet God in the eyes of those we meet in the bank, the charity shop, and the places we go. And so importantly, we can meet God in our actions, in our understanding, and in the grace that we show. So may we show others grace, understanding, and compassion by everything that we do. And maybe that will stop them Maybe that will cause them to stop and wonder why we are so different. So friends, may we go from this place as resurrection people who are open to meeting Jesus everywhere we are and everywhere we go in the expected and the unexpected. Let's pray together. Loving God, you've called us to be witnesses to your love your glory and your place in our lives. And so we ask you to inspire us through your word to go out into our world to meet with you. And so loving God this week, give us patience and compassion and grace, not built on our own strength, but built on the knowledge that you are there with us. You're there in our relationships. So may we see you everywhere we go. In Jesus' name, amen.